Hi, and welcome to You Should Check It Out. This is Jay wishing you a very happy new year, 2020. We have something special for you today to celebrate the new year and the closing out of the decade that was the 2010s. We wanted to take a look back and give you our picks for our favorite albums of the decade. I don't know about you, but this holiday season has been a particularly busy one, and as you can probably tell, it's <clears throat> taken its toll on me and my voice. Things have been so busy here at You Should Check It Out HQ that we weren't able to find a day to record this episode altogether. Since we were all so excited about naming our favorite albums of the decade, we decided to each record our segments separately so that we could bring this special episode to you. So without further ado, and with a Big thanks to all of our listeners, and a happy new year from all of us here. Here's Nick to get things started. Happy 2020, everybody. This is Nick from You Should Check It Out, and hope everybody had a safe and happy holiday. And here we are. Here's my first pick. How does a bastard, orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman, dropped in the middle of a forgotten? In a previous iteration of the show, uh, Greg actually presented the album To Pimp a Butterfly to the group, and it's been a regular listen ever since, and this was going to be my, my, my first pick, but I'm more than happy to let Greg have that one, um, because he was gracious enough to share that, so I'm going to pick one that if we were doing a regular episode, I might not pick, because I'm going to be that guy that picks a cast recording of a musical. So I'm, I'm picking Hamilton um, as my first pick. And to be honest, I've been, I've been a history junkie since high school, and I, I had read Ron Chernow's book on Hamilton when it, when it came out in 2004, and the way that Lin-Manuel Miranda, and this has been said so many ways and so by so many people, but the way he took this very enjoyable but pretty standard biography and turned it into this riveting story, it just can't be understated how impressed I, I was with the amount of historical information that he was able to pack into two and a half hours. I think if it hadn't been the fact that I have kids, it, it probably would have been one of those things that I just enjoyed and didn't feel the need to share with, with you guys. And I'm sure you've heard it if you've had any interest whatsoever and, and have not listened to it if you decided that I don't want to listen to this. I'm not interested in listening to a, a cast recording of a musical, but it, it is a fantastic portrait of one of America's founding fathers, and it's incredibly enjoyable and extremely moving. And and again, the reason I brought up the kids is because it's a great way to introduce them to U.S. history in a way that they care about without dad talking and them ignoring. Um, so, yep, there it is. I uh, I'm picking Hamilton as my first pick, and I stand by it. The only person you have to convince is me. Secretary Jefferson, you have the floor, sir. When we were on death's door, when we were needy, we made a promise. We signed a treaty. We needed money and guns and half a chance. Uh, who provided those funds? France. In return, they didn't ask for land. Only a promise that we'd lend a hand and stand with them if they fought against oppressors. And revolution is messy, but now is the time to stand. Stand with our brothers as they fight against tyranny. I know that Alexander Hamilton is here and he would rather not have this debate. I'll remind you that he is not Secretary of State. He knows nothing of loyalty. Smells like new money, dresses like fake royalty. Desperate to rise above his station. Everything he does betrays the ideals of our nation. If you don't know, now you know, Mr. President. Thank you, Secretary Jefferson. Secretary Hamilton, your response. Come on. You must be out of your goddamn mind if 
about Treaty King Louis' head? Uh, do whatever you want, I'm super dead. That's enough, enough. Hamilton is right. Mr. President. Alrighty, so I am up for my second pick, which is going to be Tame Impala's Lonerism. This was released in October 2012, and I remember in the summer of 2012, uh, Gauthier's Somebody That I Used To Know had, I think it had edged out Call Me Maybe as the song of the summer. At least I hope that's how it's remembered. But about halfway through, it was like late late July, this single dropped, and it was like this fuzz-laden, psychedelic song called Elephant, and it sounded like it was released about 30 years after it was written and recorded. Uh, it was a really good song. The singer sounded a, a bit like John Lennon, or maybe he was trying to. And I tend to bluster when some new indie band drops a song that's going after an, an older sound. Uh, I usually assume that some hipsters recently discovered eBay and were you know, too excited not to use their recently acquired and poorly reconditioned big muff pedal. I think that's the one that gives you the 70s fuzz guitar sound, but I'm a drummer, so I don't really know. Anyway, it wasn't until, it wasn't until I think, early October that the full album dropped, and I didn't really give it a fair shake until uh, a friend of the show, Kreshmir, recommended it, so thank you, Kresh. I'm not sure I would have given it a fair shake unless, unless he vouched for it or told me with confidence that I definitely would like this record. And while it's impossible not to hear the influences, like, like the Beatles and the vocals and the drums and and the careful sloppiness of like the Velvet Underground and his guitars. This album is is so much more than another like indie homage to a past generation. The album opens with what sounds like a runner's out of breath mantra. Gotta be above it, gotta be above it, gotta be above it. And, and then a synchronized drum beat fades in and like weirdness reigns. Uh, I genuinely love it, but it's it's a tough first song to open with as far as, you know, getting friends and family and, you know, people that I think might enjoy this also, getting them to give it a fair shot. But what's so different about the the album, to me, I guess, is, is the structure of the composition. I've, I've read since that, that Kevin Parker thinks like an electronic producer, and I think that's a good way to describe what's going on with, with his songs. His songs are built in layers and sections, and they don't follow a lot of the rules that, that I learned to follow when, when working through new music. And also, I'm, I'm referring to Kevin Parker rather than saying Tame Impala because this is just him. Like he's recording all of the instruments. There, that's not. There are some. Uh, there are some artists that that uh, play other instruments on the album, but really, it's this is entirely uh, his doing. But I was genuinely surprised when I learned this because it it's just it's a complex, dirty uh, recording sound, and and it has like the vibe of a band. But that's what it is. It's just a guy with a room full of instruments and some light gear in a basement in Perth, Australia. And it's a fantastic listen, and I can't recommend it enough. If you don't find yourself enjoying it by the second track, then do yourself a favor and skip ahead to a song called Music to Walk Home By and go for a walk. You know, get your pace up to uh, the brisk 100 beats per minute that the, the tempo's at. And after about four minutes of like a psychedelic dreamscape bliss buildup, uh, there's this payoff that comes with about about 50 seconds left in the song. It's it's almost like this pseudo hook. It, it's it's wonderful, and and you won't regret it, and you'll have gone for a nice walk. So, go do that. Anyway, that's my second pick. Uh, this is Tame Impala from 2012. The album is called Lunarism.
Alrighty, and time for my, my top pick of the 2010s. Uh, this is Boney Vare's 22 a Million, which was released September 2016, and it's definitely my favorite album of the past decade. It was actually it was actually their self-titled second album that first drew me in. I almost went with that one too. Uh, the jump that Justin Vernon made from his initial solo album for Emma Forever Ago and the 2011 self-titled Boney Vare was was a kind of upending shift that I hadn't really experienced since probably since I listened to, to Kid A. I'm not comparing him to Radiohead. It just means that it felt like a, as big a jump. Vernon's ear, much like Kevin Parker's actually, uh, from the Tame Impala pick that I had, he has a discernment and clarity that's it's just so far beyond my own. I can't imagine not sticking with both of these artists wherever they go in the years to come just to be along for the ride. Given how much I loved uh, Bon Iver's second album, I-, I was extremely nervous about where things would go next. Justin Vernon was all over the place, spending a lot of time after his self-titled initial re- or, uh, second release uh, working with, you know, Kanye West on My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy and and also Yeezus and then he worked with Jay-Z and James Blake. When your first solo album though is a solo acoustic indie folk record uh, recorded you know alone in a Wisconsin cabin over a winter with just an acoustic guitar and then you follow up that with a you know basically abandoning your primary instrument and building a new sound from scratch you just don't know where the third album might land. But 22 A Million took uh, every good evolution between records one and two and, uh, and applied that same thing to, this, to, the, to the third record. It's another one that pushes on the idea of making music accessible, which I actually appreciate. It's, I, I think for some it was a tough listen, just a little bit weird. But it is a fantastic creation from a, a really interesting artist that I'm excited to hear what he does throughout his career. And I think this is a warranted pick, and hope everybody enjoys it as well. This is Boney Vare's 22 A Million from September of 2016. And so it's not in your class. What's the function of the test when I stand myself? Help me reach the hell for the Two separate lives ain't that some kind of quandary Wandry, take me into your bones What is left when I'm Thanks for listening to the You Should Check It Out podcast. This is Greg Lohman, the host with the most. Uh, Actually, that's not true. I'm one of three with equally as much as the others. And 
we are coming at you with our favorite albums of the decade. So if you want to hear my picks, listen up. One record that came out this decade that I know will not be overlooked on many of these types of lists is uh, Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly, which it's honestly, I mean, it is a great work of art. I was transported when I first heard it, and basically every listen since then, and I can't speak highly enough of it as as an album, as a work of art, and uh, also just as a as an intense collaborative effort between uh, the rapper Kendrick Lamar and his producers and his studio musicians. These guys came in and had some sessions that really uh, were so inspired and you can feel it from track to track. And what he put together with this record, I mean, it was game changing. I think everyone knew that once the, once it came out, sort of unannounced. Uh, one of my favorite s- songs off of it is called These Walls, with a shifting perspective about the same topic. But it's, it's all very, very dense listen, and I can't really describe it to you. You just have to check it out. Kendrick Lamar, To Pimp a Butterfly, one of my favorite albums of the decade. can be misunderstood war telling me they're full of pain resentment need someone to live in them just to relieve tension me i'm just a tenant landlord said the wall vacant more than a minute the wall of vulnerable exclamation interior pink color coordinated i interrogated every nook and cranny i mean it's still amazing before they couldn't stand me these walls want to cry tears these walls happier when i'm here these walls never can hold up every time i come around demolition might Another favorite record of mine from this last decade was, well, it's a bit on the heavier side, but it's by a band from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania called Code Orange, and it's called Forever. What I love about this album is after hearing it, I just was blown away by the production, by how slick it was for a band that was so heavy. Because it was really cool, it was. It just has really cool creative uh, elements dispersed throughout, and it actually has dynamics. It made me feel like I was listening to almost like a like if a, if if it was a new Nine Inch Nails album, but Trent Reznor was somehow just twenty again and just incredibly pissed off. And I don't know. I just had that. It, it took me there. It took me to that world and. Um, I really appreciated what they put together, and again, just the production of, from the drums to the, to the guitars are just really, really tight, and 
for me, what's important with an album is it has to kind of have its own world. And even though all the songs are different, anytime you hear one of those songs, it brings you back to that same world. And I think that a, a way of achieving that really depends on the producer who on this record really made it work. And um, so, yeah, without further ado, maybe we can listen to a clip. But um, if you like heavy music, Forever by Code Orange, I think is destined to be a classic. So I only get three picks for my favorite album of the decade, and there's obviously a ton of music that I have heard uh, this decade that came out, and uh, a lot of good stuff. I would be remiss, though, if I didn't mention uh, the Kurt Vile album, Smoke Ring for My Halo, which a friend of mine gave to me, and it's a Philadelphia-based songwriter, Kurt Vile. I, I put it on, and it just really... His approach to his songs was so different than what I heard was hearing at the time, because he just had this really not almost lethargic approach to how he was singing everything, and his lyrics matched that, and the whole mood of the of the music matched that, and I just found it really engaging, despite it being soft and slow, which is a tough sell for me. But he really pulled it off on Smoke Ring for My Halo with really heartfelt lyrics, and I thought it would be worth bringing it up. I did have a few honorable mentions for this segment. I loved Lonerism by Tame Impala. I loved David Bowie's Black Star, D'Angelo's Black Messiah, Sunbather by Deaf Heaven, the Father John Misty albums. There are all kinds of things out there that really touched me. But again, looking at the scope of a record, I, I really would say that if you if you like sincere songwriting with really cool kind of modern hipster but classic production, uh, definitely check out Kurt Vile's Smoke Ring for My Halo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
Hey there, it's Jay again. For my first pick, I'm going to go with Daft Punk's 2013 release, Random Access Memories. First of all, it's hard for me to believe that this album came out in 2013. Uh, somehow it seems so much longer ago and, and so much more timeless than that. Uh, I heard about this album, of course, from all the hype surrounding its release and its incredible single, Get Lucky. But what made me want to dig in a bit more was a colleague of mine who explained that the guys in Daft Punk went out of their way to make a dance album in the style and method of dance and disco albums from the 70s and 80s. Uh, to that end, they used live instrumental performances and limited the use of electronic drum machines, samplers, and sequencers. They collaborated with a ton of, of great artists, including Nile Rodgers, Paul Williams, Pharrell, Julian Casablancas, and many, many more. To me, it sounds like an incredible distillation of popular dance music from the late 70s and early 80s. Something very familiar and yet new, fresh, and unique. Uh, the album flows together beautifully. Uh, many of the songs are in the same key and feature similar grooves, so it all kind of fits together really well. And, and the amazing dance tracks are complemented by the spoken word and soundscape tracks that uh, just makes the whole album feel like a concept, uh, like a dance concept album, really. Perhaps best of all, thanks to the amazing Nile Rodgers, to me it made it clear that there was still a place in dance music for that clean, compressed, and ever more oh-so-funky, clean electric guitar. Oh, yeah. Twenty sixteen was a tough year for aging rock and pop stars. We lost so many great musicians. We lost Prince, Leonard Cohen, Maurice White, Merle Haggard, Glenn Fry, George Michael, Ralph Stanley, Keith Emerson, Guy Clark, Mose Allison, Leon Russell, Bernie Worrell, and so 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 many more. Uh, but the loss that hit the most and hit most, the hardest, I suspect, was probably David Bowie. 
David Bowie passed away on January 10th, 2016 from liver cancer. His death was preceded two days earlier on the 8th of January with the release of his 25th and ultimately final studio album, Black Star. Producer Tony Visconti has said that the album was intended to be Bowie's swan song and a parting gift for his fans before his death. And knowing the creative vision and meaning, personal and otherwise, that Bowie tended to put into his studio work, I believe this is probably true. And that's an easy thing for someone to say after the fact, but just imagine that you are a musician that, that knows that your days are numbered. You're fighting a losing battle with a disease that most of your fans aren't even aware that you have. What do you say? What kind of songs do you write? How do you describe what you're going through? Well, Bowie, for his part, chose to make a fairly bleak album, almost anti-pop, with primarily a quintet of, of jazz players, young guys who specialize in improvisation and had no idea that Bowie was recording his last album or was, or was on his way out. Go figure, that's Bowie for you. I can say that I've listened to this album many, many, many times, and I still fail to reach a conclusion about what he was trying to say, or if indeed he was trying to say anything. But Bowie wouldn't necessarily care about that, I don't think. I believe that throughout his career, his intention was to create works of art that create impressions and allow the audience to be transported to another place of Bowie's creation. And whether or not that place happened to be a reflection of Bowie's actual real life, or even Bowie's fictional life, I believe Bowie would not care one bit. What I can say is that Black Star is a masterpiece of an album. It's a work of depth, of color, variety, ingenuity, creativity, and above all, great music. Just like Bowie's life. Nothing left to lose 
so high it makes my brain whirl Drop my cell phone down below My last pick for my favorite album of the decade is Jason Isbell's Southeastern, which was released in 2013. It's uh, it's genuinely difficult for me to try to describe the impact that this album had on me and the type of music that I write and perform upon its release. The album resurrected uh, Jason Isbell's career, and it really since then has only grown in its significance among music fans. Uh, I was familiar with Isbill from his fantastic guitar playing and songwriting as a member of the Drive-By Truckers. Uh, coincidentally, the very first episode of You Should Check It Out, just a demo version that was ever recorded, back when it was just Nick and me doing audio essays about albums that we liked, the first episode was me just trying to convince Nick to enjoy the album Decoration Day by the Drive-By Truckers, primarily because of the presence of such great Isbell tracks as Outfit and, uh, of course, the title track. Although there were only two songs that Isbell was credited as writing on the album, I could hear the influence he had over the rest of the band, and to this day, his tenure in the Truckers is far and away my favorite era of, of that whole band's catalog. But Southeastern, while it wasn't Isbell's first solo recording was certainly the first time most folks had heard about him. Uh, the album got quite a bit of press at the time due to Isbell's openness about his stint in rehab and the resulting sobriety which he maintains to this day. It's really remarkable to hear the maturity and the growth in this album as compared to any of his previous releases. Uh, he's able to touch on, to explore, and and really interact and get down to the nitty-gritty with difficult emotions and topics with a depth and an authenticity that really wasn't apparent before he got, before he got clean. Uh, this album was a touchstone, and it created a new hero in Jason Isbell for me. The courage and resiliency that he showed, and the grace and humanity with which he conducts himself now, while still allowing himself to have fun and rock out as an unapologetic guitar nerd, uh, it's really a model for the type of music that I want to make, the type of father that I want to be, and the type of man who I can be inspired by, cherishing positivity and love, uh, not chasing dreams of rock star excess. So from all of us here at You Should Check It Out, our best wishes for a safe, happy, productive, and healthy 2020 and the decade beyond. We will see you next week. She said, Andy, you're better than your past. Winked at me and drained her glass. Cross legged on a bar stool like nobody sits anymore. She said, Andy, you're taking me home. But I knew she planned to sleep alone I'd carry her to bed and sweep up the hair from her floor If I'd fucked her before she got sick I'd never hear the end of it She don't have the spirit for that now We just drink our drink 
drinks and laugh out loud Bitch about the weekend crowd And try to ignore the elephant somehow Somehow She said, and you crack me up Seagram's in a coffee cup Sharecropper eyes and the hair almost all gone When she was drunk she made cancer jokes Made up her own doctor's notes Surrounded by her family I saw that she was dying alone But I'd sing her a classic country song She'd get high and sing along She don't have a voice to sing with We burn these joints in effigy Cry about what we used to be Try to ignore the elephant somehow Somehow